again, everyone. Welcome back, friends and relatives, to the JT Show. I am very pleased to have our guest today, Dr. Paulette Steves. Uh, Dr. Paulette Steves, you are an Indigenous archaeologist. Um, you're Cree and Métis, First Nations of Canada. You're a professor at Algoma University in um, St. Um, Saint Marie, Ontario. And you're the author of The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere, this book right here. Um, very, very honored to have you on and, and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Tansi. It's an honor to be here. Absolutely. Um, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd just like to really get right into it. Um, I think a, maybe a great place to start is talking about what what has been, what has been taught in schools, you know, to give our, our listeners and, and our viewers kind of a brief overview of what we're talking about, what your book is about, and that generally accepted, you know, belief that the indigenous people of North, North, what is known today as North America have only been here for prior to 12,000 to 15,000 years ago. Is that pretty accurate? Is that yeah, what that's, the common held belief? That's correct. So um, for the, for the last hundred years, archeologists have really, uh, stuck to the story that we're all Asians from Asia who came here 11 to 12,000, maybe 14,000 years ago at the most. However, uh, I'd like to remind those Western archaeologists that Asia did not exist uh, during the Pleistocene, we call it, before 10,000 years, neither did a distinct Asian culture, and that the indigenous people of the Americas are indigenous to the Western Hemisphere, known today as the Americas. And, you know, there's a lot um, that's really easy to critique about that Western archaeological story of the first people of the Americas. And, uh, you know, 11 to 24,000 years ago, that landmass area, they, they call the Bering landmass today, was covered in miles deep ice. It was not what we call a viable migration corridor. So, so no, no mammals or humans uh, would have willingly been crossing that area. There was no food, there was no water, there was no shelter from the harsh weather, and it was thousands and thousands of miles of ice. That's not a time mm -hmm. when anybody is migrating, but there are much earlier times when that area was a viable land migration route uh, prior to the last glacial maximum. So prior to 24,000 years ago, there are really good solid records of um, mam mammalian migration. So our four-legged relations were coming back and forth between what we call today Asia and what we call today North America. There was land, it was actually, a lot of it was a subtropical forest. Hmm. So there was a lot of food, a lot of water, a lot of grazing areas. And we know that um, early humans walked, migrated 14,000 miles from Africa to Northern Asia over 2 million years ago. Mm -hmm. So it made sense to me when I began thinking about this in grad school, that really made sense to me that, um, you know, if early humans were in that area we call Northern Asia 2 million years ago, and there was a dry, viable migration route, and we know from the fossil record that an animals such as um, horses and camels and saber-toothed cats, they all arose in the Americas. They were here first. 
So to get to the rest of the world, they had to cross that landmass. And we know they were doing that from the fossil record. So we're supposed to believe that even though humans were in Northern Asia two, two million years ago, mm -hmm. um, they never followed the mammals and came to what we call today the Americas. That doesn't make any sense. So what, um, I, I think one thing that I found so so very interesting and in, and in, in a topic that was raised in your book was that it seems to be like common held belief or the generally accepted theory right now is that the indigenous people of of the Western Hemisphere were just dropped out of a plane 15,000 years ago. And we developed all of these languages and all of these different cultural subgroups and everything all the way down to South America. And they're finding sites down there now. And this all just happened as soon as like the day the ice shelf melted, then all of a sudden here we are, <laughs> which yeah, makes no sense. It's just, uh, it's mind boggling how mm. Western archeologists have gotten away with these unsupported, uns unsubstantiated um, hypothesis of our arrival. And it's actually to their credit, some of those Western archeologists have critiqued that and call it out themselves. Mm -hmm. People don't arrive in a continent and within 200 years populate the entire continent and build like, the, the languages, you mentioned the languages. So there's mm -hmm. around 360 language families in the world, 380. Mm -hmm. And you would, you know, they take uh, 6,000 years for one language, even within a language family, for one new language to develop. 6,000 years. So you would expect the area of the world with the greatest number of language uh, families to have been populated for a very long time. And where do you think that is? Over 50%, over 180 of the language families in the world are in North and South America, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Europe has mm -hmm. four. Wow. We have over 180, 15 in California alone. Mm -hmm. And the diversity that speaks to is amazing. That's a huge amount of time. Joanna Nicholas is a, um, a settler scholar. She's a linguist. And she originally argued that it would have taken minimally 70,000 years for that many languages to develop. And she was um, strongly critiqued for that. So she revised it to 34,000 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But this has been an issue in the field of American archaeology. There are a group of those Western settler archaeologists who did document sites older than what we call Clovis, older than 12,000 years. And whenever they did and they published on it, um, they were severely critiqued. It was called an area of academic suicide. If mm. you wanted to end your career as an archaeologist, publish your truth about a site older than 12,000 years in North or South America. So that was really a, a roadblock for, for the last hundred years. And um, right now I'm working on a second book to honor 60 of those settler archaeologists who did stick their neck out and published what they knew to be the truth mm -hmm. and many of them made yeah. but um those archaeologists some of them were fired from their jobs a lot of them were blacklisted um they were severely critiqued and thus you know they had a really hard time getting funding for future re research and it's still very dangerous to publish on earlier sites in the americas uh, but archaeologists have begun to publish more on 
sites that date to 20,000, 30,000 mm. years. And you have to remember mm. that human evolution, uh, you know, and human migrations were a global event. And what we know about that, what was thought to be facts 10 years ago has all been debunked. And, the, you know, the human history of evolution has been completely rewritten. We have at least mm. four new early hominid species. We know they were all over the world. They were early humans were very capable travelers. And um, I have to constantly remind archaeologists when they're, you know, talking about the Americas that they need to check their language. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as the old world and the new world. There's mm -hmm. one world and the whole world is old. And so archaeologists, a lot of people that are teaching and writing, you know, in, in our history, continue to use those terminologies that dehumanize us and that really erase our presence on the land. And that's um, something that I really push back against in a big way, mm -hmm. because I have, uh, when I started grad school, I asked Dr. Holan at the Denver Museum if he knew of any sites earlier than 10 or 12,000 years. And he sent me a list of 10 sites and he said, don't tell anyone what you're studying. They're just going to call you crazy. But I started reading about those 10 sites and learning about more sites. And in two weeks, I had a list of over 500 sites that predated 12,000 wow. years before present. I, wow. I now have a list of over 4,000. And this is just the published uh, material. This is just published in academic journals and books. If we look at every state office in mm -hmm. the United States or in the provinces of Canada, there's a huge record of sites that are not published. And these are sites, well, they built mm -hmm. a road or a bridge and they discovered a site mm -hmm. and a professional archeology span crew had to document it. They had to date it. They had to do the same thing you do if you publish it, but they weren't published. So I found out this year that in Arizona alone, there's 1,400 sites that predate 11,200 years in the Arizona Archaeological Office. So if we went state by state and province by province, we'd probably have thousands more thousands. sites, sure. you know, that predate. So there's so much more evidence now um, for our presence than there was 10 years ago. And those archaeologists who are really critiquing and making it a dangerous area to study or publish in are being mm -hmm. silenced. They're retiring, they're leaving the profession, and they're being silenced. There's still a lot of them out there. Dr. Holland at the Denver Museum, they published on the Soretti site. That's the site just north of San Diego that dated to 130,000 years before present. When they found that site, there was a small road uh, connection program going on. They knew that uh, those mastodon bones had been worked on by humans and they knew it was very old. And this was, I think, over 10 years ago. So they put them away in careful curation at the Museum of Man in San Diego, all the artifacts and bone. And they waited till new decades dating technologies got to a place they couldn't be questioned for very old bone. Mm -hmm. And um, 
when they did do that research, they got the date of 130,000 years, and it was such a wow. solid piece of research. They managed to get it published in an academic journal. I think it was um, science, no, Nature or Science. But um, they were severely critiqued by a lot of archaeologists for those dates. But in that area, I know of at least uh, 12 sites in Southern California that date between 40 and 120 or 200,000 years, and five in Central Mexico that date from 40 to 200,000 years. So you see a regional area with a pretty good solid body of evidence for early humans as early as 200,000 years before present. That is still um, severely critiqued by many American archaeologists. But I did do a big survey earlier this year, and I think it was 168 archaeologists that replied. And I was very surprised because this is a huge, huge change from even five years ago. But 70% of the archaeologists now believe we've been here over 25,000 years, and they now uh, agree that there is documented historical evidence in rock art and oral traditions. So that shows a big shift beginning in American archaeology. We still have a long ways to go, sure. but um, nobody has really studied in this area. Like I'm the only archaeologist in the world that has created a comprehensive database of sites older than 11 to 12,000 years in North and South America and pulled together this whole picture. And that's because, you know, graduate students aren't encouraged, they're discouraged from studying in this area. And because it's mm. been a dangerous area to study for archaeologists in the Americas. That, that, that goes just counterintuitive to the whole point of you know of archaeology studying the past i mean it, it's your job to go and discover new truths and find facts and i just find it astounding that in your field in this field of of archaeology that there is this level of of just i, I a stubbornness uh, uh unwillingness to to advance I mean, you you had to have ruffled some feathers from that side of the of segment of 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 the academia with with your publication. Uh, how, how difficult has it been moving forward? You know, being um, one of the archaeologists in the world that are are trying to move these things forward. Well, I'll tell you, I um, I've been on this path, this journey, been a part of this ceremony of research for a while, but. In 1988, I grew up in British Columbia in Lillooet, and in 1988, I was getting divorced. I had three kids, no education, no money, and I went to talk to the Salish elder who knew my family well, and uh, he said to me what I was going through at the time was training to learn to deal with difficult situations in a good way, and he said, that the elders had discussed my path and he said they knew I had a job to do in the future that would really help Indian people. He said, not just our community, all Indian people. And he said, we don't know what it is, but it's gonna be a lot harder than this. And you know, that was 1988, I never forgot his words. And when I was graduating with my PhD in 2015, 
I remembered his words and I'm like, oh, this is my job. I just have to rewrite, you know, global history to include the Americas. I got this. So <laughs> we have to learn to listen. So for me, the saving grace has been learning to listen to creator, to ancestors, to the elders that come and talk to me, to the people, and to really understand the importance of this work. So I, for a long time, have really thought about the high suicide rates in many Native American and First Nations communities. And mm -hmm. my focus on doing this work was to create some kind of hope, some piece of, of hope or healing uh, by reclaiming our history and by telling these truths. And my daughter went to a, a meeting in Northern BC, a young women's circle healing meeting. And there were a lot of girls and they were in a circle and everyone had to share one thing uh, that brought them hope. And they would take all these thoughts of hope back to their communities. And my daughter said, there was one girl and she said her face just lit up and she got so excited. And she said, wow, there's this Indian archeologist. And uh, she says, we've been here over 50,000 years. And that really gives me hope we'll get our land, our history, our languages, our culture and our humanity, everything back. And my daughter said, tee hee hee, I didn't tell her it was my mom. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I've gotten mm -hmm. many messages, you know, many emails from students, from classes mm -hmm. of students, from elders, from, you know, leaders about how they're so happy that this book came out and that somebody's telling the truth about our history. And as far as the pushback from settler archeologists, mm -hmm. um, there really hasn't been much, but I have not been hired to a department of archeology span in the US or in Canada. Not that I haven't applied. Mm -hmm. I've applied to um, many positions, just testing the waters, not thinking mm -hmm. that I would get hired. Because as you see in my book, I tell the truth about racism and bias, the history of that in American archaeology. Mm -hmm. And the last interview I went to was at a huge university here, well-funded university in Ontario. And, um, and they, they had read my materials, were part of the same professional organization. So they know my writing and they know my book and, and that I tell the truth about racism and archaeology. And during the interview, the former president of the Canadian Archaeology Society screamed at me that I needed to change how I talked about archaeologists. And she was screaming. She, her face was such a screwed up mess. She looked like the top of her head was going to pop off. She was mad. And I'm like, this is so unethical and unprofessional. Why would you invite me to an interview just so you could scream at me? Mm -hmm. And her friend sitting beside her asked me, are you going to change how you talk about archaeologists if you work here? And I said, no, absolutely not. And so mm -hmm. sometimes the pushback is that obvious. Um, it mm -hmm. hasn't been obvious in critique of my work. There have been reviews of my book that have been very mild to positive. But I also know that a lot of settler archaeologists um, need to work with Indigenous people and the last thing they want to do is make them angry. And if they critique my book, our, our oral traditions that we've been here since time immemorial, you're going to make some people angry. And I think mm -hmm. they're being very careful not to do that in Indian country. 
You know, we we live in this world now that um, cancel culture will come after you if you say the wrong thing. Um, the term woke is used a lot. Um, you know, and and there's there's two sides to every coin, and kind of what I'm hearing too is that, you know, maybe this is very definitely a positive thing for indigenous native american people because this is the chance now for the real history to be told the real history to be published and you know the 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 whatever has been the the dogmatic view of american archaeology for the last 100 years um you know this definitely seems like the opportunity um, for our voices to be heard and our history and stories to be heard because there's we all know the the real history of of you know of, of historic trauma and the things the governments did to indigenous people and so forth that is coming out i think i you know i, I definitely agree with with what um is, is published in your book about the use of historical data uh and archaeology to dehumanize indigenous people and and one of the one of the key terms and i remember hearing this growing up through school coming up through, through grade school and high school that term clovis people oh the, the the clovis people and um you know i was just taught that well that that's who we were that's you know we had these these stone uh markings and that was our our clovis people that's who we were but you you definitely you know talk about something in that in, in your book what dr steve what's wrong with the term clovis what what's wrong with that term <laughs> the only place the clovis people ever existed was in the wildest imagination of the archaeological mind so it was really um highly political so you know it wasn't about the archaeology or the archaeo archaeological evidence what that does is like we see uh, cultural groups, they have music, they have dance, they have clothing, they have ritual, they have marriage rites. There are a lot of things that make a group of people a culture. Clovis people and Clovis culture was based on one stone tool. So one stone tool technology that was found throughout North America and parts of Northern South America. A stone tool is not a culture, it's not a people. There's no such thing as the Clovis people. What that did was it erased an incredibly immense diversity of different indigenous groups in the Americas. And so what that did was just totally wipe out all of our diversity and make us one group of people. Nowhere in the world do we see a pan-hemispheric size cultural group. Cultural mm -hmm. groups are regional, right? They're, they're in small little environmental areas all around the world. So for archaeologists to, to push this claim for 100 years that the Clovis people uh, were here and then they disappeared. Oh, my God, mm -hmm. where did they go? Mm -hmm. Right? We're the masters of hide and seek. You know, that was rhetoric. None of that was based on science. And you, you had mentioned earlier you know, it's our job as archaeologists to study the human past. It is not our job, you know, in fact, it's highly unethical to deny that any time or space anywhere in the world, humans were not there, right? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. What we know has, like I said, has completely changed in the last 10 years. And we know that humans were using some form of uh, open water transport as early as 100,000 years ago. They were cre- carving fish hooks as early as 90,000 years ago. Like humans were very, very capable at migrating and adapting to new environments. So this big argument that we didn't get here until the end of a glaciation after we migrated across thousands of miles of ice, that's ridiculous. Hmm. Like how could hmm. they pass that off? It, none, of that, none of the whole Clovis first hypothesis was ever supported by scientific data. It was complete conjecture. It was political control to erase our connections to these lands. And um, I discussed that in, in chapter two of my book. And that was really the, you know, none, none of the book was hard to write except chapter two, because I had to delve into this deep history of racism hmm. in American archaeology. So like many areas of the world in the early 1900s, um, colonization and racism was was how they did things in, in, mm-hmm. in that time. Mm-hmm. And it was actually American archaeologists that created an office of eugenics at Cold Harbor, New York. And that is the thought patterns. That was what the Nazis used for the Holocaust. It came from American archaeologists. So American archaeologists in the early 1900s thought it was fine to um, rid ourselves of people who weren't perfect in their eyes or who had some kind of flaw or possibly were criminal. And so, as you know, there were um, head scalp payments on indigenous people and it was legal to kill people and sell their scalps to the government for money. Mm. That's the kind of um, thought pattern that American archeology span developed from. After the Holocaust, a group of archeologists tried to move physical anthropology towards more the medical field and and then supporting people in a lot of um, Central American and Latin American countries with identifying people who have been killed by the government. So archaeology has grown and developed into a newer and better area. But when it comes to the history of indigenous people of the Americas being here more than 11 or 12,000 years, it's still a really sore spot in a lot of areas of archaeology and it shouldn't be because we have to expand our understanding of humans we have to look on a global scale and like i said if early humans were in northern asia two million years ago there's no reason they wouldn't have been here mammals were coming and going it was a you know a beautiful continent very rich very diverse and from my research when i map all of these sites that i've gotten to the database we can see that people were in uh like uh areas of georgia and mm. brazil minimally fifty thousand years ago so how long before then did they have to be on these lands to travel that far and to get used to the environment all the different environments on the way to those places and you're right, in Indian country, a lot of people have said to me, like my friend Carrie Wilson said, wow, you think the Quapaw just were, were dropped out of a, you know, a spaceship by little green men right before you know <laughs> the white guys got here. That's how we're made to feel. 
And then you still hear these ridiculous conversations. Oh, the Clovis people disappeared. Mm. Nobody ever disappears. How about they moved? Mm -hmm. They migrated. They Mm -hmm. went to another space. They changed their technologies. Um, There's so many ways that archaeologists can discuss our history without dehumanizing us, like calling us Asians from Asia. I still see that, you know, every, every week in a paper especially the archaeological and genetics papers. Oh, the first people were Asians from Asia. Asia did not exist. There were no identified cultural groups in the world during the Pleistocene. So why would you say that? Mm -hmm. We may have had ancestors that came from the area that is currently known as Asia, but they weren't Asian. Right. Right. So there's a lot of terminologies and, a, and ways of discussing that still need to be decolonized um, so, that, so that these settler scientists will stop uh, dehumanizing us. I, I, I read an interesting fact, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe it was the, uh, the presence on the Australian continent has been like around 65,000 years or so and and i mean that's a whole like the largest island <laughs> island continent and you know and, and people populated that continent you know 65,000 years ago but yet you know the 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 view is that you know the, the indigenous people have only been in north and south americas for the last 15,000 years and it's just crazy to to think that you know that's still what is being taught in schools or that's what's being accepted because that's what's what published out there that's what's published still in in school books i don't know yeah that's it's really ludicrous that you Mm. know any archaeologist that respects his profession would say anything like that anymore Mm. we you know there are sites in australia that date to eighty thousand years there are sites in java Mm. that date to eight hundred thousand years and so to really uh for me to really get an understanding of the possibilities uh, for early humans in the world anywhere. I had to look on a global scale. So that was a huge piece of work and mm-hmm. years of study to understand um, where early humans were in the world, um, what forms of transport, if any, they were using, and uh, to start understanding their technologies and their tools and their environments, and then look at the sites and what we call today the Americas and, you know, Mm -hmm. look for similarities and uh, see how people here were managing to adapt. And, you know, when you have a landscape that's covered with, you know, saber-toothed cats, short-faced bears, giant sloths, you know, a lot of um, dangerous now extinct species, you have to be very careful and you have to really learn to understand the land before you can successfully adapt to living in those lands. And like right. I say, in the Americas, we have so many different rich and diverse uh, environments. It would have taken people quite some time to adapt, but we've been very lucky. Uh, well, I say lucky, it should be typical, but in the last um few years, a number of new sites have been published, like the White Sands Footprint site in New Mexico Mm -hmm. that dates to 23,000 years. Um, That's a fabulous piece of work, but you can understand how archaeologists are very fearful 
of even publishing on the on those sites. And so when archaeologists Still. do publish on a site that's older, they are so extremely careful. They will do five to 10 times the dating tests and every test they need because they know they're going to be severely critiqued. There's a site in Mexico, a new cave site that dates to 30,000 years. I mean, there's so much new evidence popping out. And one really good thing is that archaeologists now, some of the settler archaeologists are going back and they're looking again at sites that people denied. They were published and the body of archaeologists denied they were legitimate. And they're doing more excavations and they're restudying the artifacts and they're finding and proving those sites are legitimate sites and they're older mm. than originally thought. So that is fabulous. So we have a new, um, a new group of younger archaeologists that are going out. They're working on uh, sites in Alaska that had been denied and proving that they are legitimate sites and sites in Brazil and South America, the same thing. So we're seeing more and more people now uh, take up the work and being able to find the funding to do new field work and new testing and legitimize a lot of these sites that were previously denied. So what we're seeing now, and and a lot of this was published in your book, uh, 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 there's a there's a lot of research out there that proves if we're going to use the word pre-clovis um you know these these sites that prove that we, we've indigenous people have been in the north and south americas for prior to fifteen thousand years prior to twenty thousand years and and there's there's quite a few out there there was a a, a recent uh um, documentary that was published um and and Dr. Steves, you were featured in this in this documentary. Um, it's it's viewable on uh, HBO Max right now, but it's called Ice Age America, and it talks really specifically from different archaeological views of a lot of these different sites. I know the White Sands um, site was mentioned, as well as the uh, uh, Blue Blue Fish is it the Bluefish Mounds site in in, in Alberta? Bluefish caves. In Bluefish caves. Um, excuse me. You know, and then there's sites down in South America and in Mexico as well. And and these are just a few, right, of, of these sites that are now coming to prominence that are showing and proving. What is what is your estimation on what what that number, how many years that is that 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 we've been in indigenous people have been in North and South America? Well, you have some tool technologies here in the southeastern USA um, that mm -hmm. if those tools were in Europe, they'd be at least 300,000 years before present. So I think what we have now is just the tip of the iceberg. And, mm -hmm. you know, you have to remember that this work is being very, very dangerous and very violent for archaeologists uh, for a long time. That is mm -hmm. now changing. Mm -hmm. And that's great. And we're also now seeing the support of major American and Canadian institutions. So the um, Smithsonian put out a new handbook of North America, beautiful big book this year. And, you know, their normal story was sticking to Clovis first. Now they're citing my work and they're saying that people have been here at least 50,000 years. Canadian mm -hmm. Geographic did a major spread. They they paid a map 
maker to do a beautiful map using my data that I let them use. Mm -hmm. And they showed where people were from 300,000 years up to uh, 12,000 years ago Mm -hmm. in North and South America. So major institutions are now supporting this change and seeing these documentaries. Mm -hmm. There was another one in... um, released in Canada on CBC Gem called Walking with the Ancients. It was a smaller version Mm -hmm. of the Ice Age America documentary. Mm -hmm. But people are very interested. And what I hear from people is that, um, you know, I got a really moving email from a lady. She said her father in Alberta was 96 years old. And she said he just cried buckets of tears when he read my book because from what he saw on the land and he understood, you know, people had been here much longer, but he didn't understand why archeologists were sticking to the Clovis first story. And then he read my book and he understood. And she said it brought him to tears and he was so relieved to know that all these years his questioning was right. So I think it's the same with a lot of people that want to do documentaries and a lot of major institutions is Mm. that For years, they knew there was something not right with the Clovis first hypothesis, but they didn't know what it was. Now that my book comes out, it's very Mm -hmm. clear what it was. It was racism and bias in American archaeology. It was a first peopling story based on conjecture, not at all on facts. And now I've got a book full of facts, a book full of data and uh, more and more people are being able to go on review sites like Bluefish Caves. That was originally done by Canadian archaeologist Jacques St. Mars. Mm-hmm. And when he died, he was still being told that was not a legitimate site. So now a grad student has restudied the artifacts, reopened the site, working with the community there. And it, it's a very legitimate site. So we're seeing now we're in a time of beginning to heal this rift in American archaeology, beginning mm-hmm. to reclaim, you know, our history and our links to the land um, and our humanity. And that's incredibly important, I think, for many uh, Indigenous communities. I think another interesting point that gets raised as well um, is that that point of oral tradition. And there's a long-standing generational history of of our creation stories that have been passed from generation to generation for thousands of years um and it it's it's very interesting to hear that in in modern archaeology that indigenous oral tradition has you know generally not been included not been accepted in these research it's like oh okay what do you go and date a site or you you know you use you know carbon dating and these different dating methodologies but then there's like not including anything like actually talking to the people to which you are researching it's just it's 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 very very yeah you have a law you have a federal law in the united states called nagpra the native american graves and repatriation act and that came in in 1990 and that ordered ordered by law archaeologists to talk to uh, Native Americans regarding um, any kind of excavations on their land. So what does that tell you when in 1990, 
archaeologists have to be ordered by a federal law to talk to the Indians about their own history. And believe me, a lot of archaeologists were through the roof livid that they had to do that, that NAGPRO was passed. But um, I think some archaeologists have uh, really uh, moved the field forward by working with communities, working mm -hmm. for Indigenous communities, especially in the Pacific Northwest um, with the five tribes of the Grand Round, and really showing other archaeologists that this is the right and ethical thing to do. Of course, this is their history. Of course, you should talk to them. Why mm -hmm. wouldn't you? Like, that mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense. And oral traditions are known to, you know, documented from 40,000 years ago. In my book, I cover the one site along the Pomme de Terre River uh, called the Kasimwik site, mm -hmm. where um, uh, the Native Americans have an oral tradition. The Osage people have an oral tradition, a, a story about the battle between these great beasts and it wasn't safe to go on the land because mm. there were so many of them. But then the two groups of beasts had a huge battle and they killed each other, a lot of them. So out of thanks, now it was safe. Um, just a reminder for all of our viewers, if you haven't hit the subscribe button, uh, be sure and hit that subscribe so you can you know, catch all of our latest episodes here on the JT Show. The name of the book is The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. The author is Dr. Paulette Steves. Dr. Steves, it's been an honor truly to have you on the show, and uh, we continue to uh, wish you the best and, and all of your success, all of your research, and all of your endeavors. Thank you for being here today.